Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we look at verses 5 through 11, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, An Indwelt Temple. just a moment, we're going to read verses 5 through 11. Romans 8, 5 through 11. We've been encouraged by the fact that uh, even in the midst of everything that has been happening and while the world freaks out, uh, we as a church have been steadily growing, um, seeing increases of numbers led Pastor Ben and I to start having conversations about adjustments that may be to be made. But last Sunday, I stood up here, looked out, and you may have seen my eyes get wide by just how many people were here last week. Uh, A little crazy to look out and kind of just astounding when we look out at society, freaking out, afraid of everything, and here the people of God are assembling together to draw near to worship to do the thing we were created to do and what matters more than anything else in all of the universe. The worship of the one true and living God who is worthy of it. And, um, you know, you being here, you recognize there's, there's risk. There's risk to be here. We, the people of God, believe that it is worth it to be beheaded, to worship the living God. It is worth it to risk sickness and such. We believe that it is worth it, but as we look at circumstances, just from a leadership perspective, we want to do what is wise. And so even this week, leaders are getting together to talk once again about adjustments that we can make to make this go smoother in the future. But let me turn to scripture. Romans chapter 8. Let's read verses 5 through 11. We are specifically going to meditate on verse 9, though verses 10 and 11 also contain some of the truths we'll be looking at. But for the sake of context, let me back up to verse 5. So Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. God of glory, Father, we pray that you will help us to recognize your glory in this time. 
We have sung your praises. We have read your word. We have participated in numerous avenues of worship. And now, Lord, coming to this awesome, sacred time of opening your word and the attempt to explain it and try to communicate at least a fraction of the meaning that is here, we beg for your blessing. We, your people, want more of you. We want to know your glory. We know your great agenda is to glorify your name and display your glory. So Lord, our will is in accord with what you want. So we're begging, oh God, please bless that. We want to see your glory. Please show it to us, oh God. As we seek to draw near, please, oh God, enable, empower, send your spirit to stir and illuminate and awaken and stir us to worship, oh God. So Father, show us these truths. I just pray, God, that we'll come and arrive at the truth. Pr protect my lips. I'm just fearful to speak anything that is untrue. I wanna be careful. So please, God, set a guard over my lips that I only speak truth. Lead us, O oh God, to what is right. And Lord, reveal yourself, we pray. Awaken those who need salvation. We pray the same for back in the children's room, O oh God. Cause your word to bring to life the little ones that are not yet born again. Father, we pray that there'll be multiple souls come to Christ this morning. And for your people, those who are already in Christ, please God, use this for the stirring of our worship the building of knowledge, but not so that it would stay facts, but lead to the transformation of our thinking of our lives and just who we are on the inside, the character of God. So for the glory of your great name, for the hallowing of your name, we pray, bless this time, O Lord God. And we pray this through the name of your son. Amen. As we've been studying through the Lord's Supper this year, you may remember that we've done some talking about Israel's calendar. That when he formed them into a nation and entered into a covenant with them, there is this beautiful truth that he wrote their year's calendar. And into that calendar, he wrote in holy days, festivals. You may remember that we've spent some time talking about Passover because Passover is when the Lord Jesus was crucified and he took that Passover feast and transformed it to become what we now practice as the Lord's Supper. And one of the things we made mention of is that the Passover was the first of three annual feasts that we kind of talk about as the, the big feast, the great feast. They were the three that God required at least every man to come to Jerusalem and to worship through observing the feast and the festival. Well, the second annual feast had an interesting connection to the Passover. Now, if I could just kind of parenthesis for a second here, just say, I just find it so stirring considering what it would be to live with the calendar that God wrote and all through the year, multiple times every month, there were these high holy days that God led his people to worship in, in various responses. You know, because we worship when we repent and like repentance, we humble ourselves. It doesn't feel good. It's, it's hard, hard work. But we also worship when we give thanksgiving and great joy. God wrote into their calendar ways that they worship through the year in, in, this, in these various ways. The day, the day of atonement, for instance, 
was a day they were to humble themselves, confess and repent of sin. So there was very solemn, hard heart work. But then other holy days where God said, feast, drink the wine, eat, eat of the good meat, rejoice. God wrote into their calendar various ways. This find is so stirring and there's, there's so much theology to learn whenever you study the meaning behind them. But, but, but back to this second annual festival. The day after the Passover Sabbath, the first sheaf from the barley harvest, it would be brought to the priest and the priest would wave it before the Lord. It was, it was called a wave offering. You know, this kind of a way that there's a, a parable preached in what he was doing in this. Wave it before the Lord. And then they were to count off seven weeks from that moment. Okay, so it was the day after Passover. So one, now seven weeks, seven times seven, 49. 50 days after Passover, they would celebrate a feast that was called by numerous names. It was called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of First Fruits. And after the 50 days, what it did is it celebrated the end of the harvest season. You remember scripture commanding us to uh, bring our first fruits to the Lord? Well, this is when they would do that. Uh, the men at least, so many times the whole family would travel if they were able to, but they would bring with them the first and the choicest of the harvest that God had given. And this is when they would bring the bulk of the tithes from the year and offer those first fruits. There would be another way that the priest waved some of these sheaves before him. And if you think about kind of what this symbolized, it was this, the wheat had been cut. It had been gathered together and tied into bundles, these sheaves that had been left out in the air to dry. Now it's been threshed, winnowed, gathered into the storehouses. God has provided again. We have bread for another year. And cultures that rely on bread for sustenance, you can imagine, this was a big deal. This festival, there, there was a big sense of relief, security, joy, gladness. We're going into winter and God has provided. That wave offering back the day after Passover, it was an act of worship in trusting the Lord. It was bringing the first sheaf waving it and in an act of trust declaring, we rely, we depend on our Lord. We trust that he will meet our needs. He will send the rain when we need it. And when we need the rain to stop so that the grain can dry, we trust that he is going to provide. And then the feast of this ingathering comes and they, they come and it's sort of this celebration. What we trusted God to do back then, he has now come through. He's provided. We're bringing the tithes from what he has done. It was a celebration of the ingathering. The ingathering. The fields were full of sheaves. We've now brought them into the storehouses and we are going to worship in Thanksgiving. It's beautiful, isn't it? Fast forward from Moses' day 1,500-ish years in the future, 
The Lord Jesus is crucified at Passover. That sheaf offering is waved. Sunday, Jesus rises from the dead. After his resurrection, Jesus remained on the earth for 40 days. During those 40 days, he appeared to his disciples. The scripture mentioned that he appeared to 500 of the brethren. He spent the most of his time with the 11 apostles. And, you know, we've mentioned this several times that what he spent, his time instructing them in that 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension was preaching on the Great Commission. The call for his people, this mission he gave to church, spread out, go out to the ends of the earth and make the gospel known. Make disciples of the ends of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. The fields are white with harvest. There are sheaves in the field and they are mine. Go get them. And not just you apostles throughout church history, go out and go get them. Gather them into my barns. But he told them not to start yet. Gives this mass massive mission, but tells them don't go do it yet. Because you must receive this helper that I've been promising you. If they would have started without receiving the Holy Spirit, they would have been completely ineffective and quite frankly, we just would mess it up. So at 40 days, Jesus gives his final instructions there in Acts chapter one. And as the apostles are watching, Jesus ascends into heaven. They don't know when they're going to receive the Spirit. Would it happen later that afternoon? Would it be... Would it be years from now? They don't know. They just start meeting, worshiping, praying, waiting. About seven-ish days later, because you got Passover, resurrection, 40 days. About seven-ish days later, it's now been 50 days from Passover. And the believers are in Jerusalem as well as about four times the regular population of Jerusalem because it is now the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Weeks, or as it had begun to be called from the word penta, meaning 50, the Feast of Pentecost. What we trusted God to do back at Passover, we are now worshiping him that he has provided. And on the day of Pentecost at nine in the morning, they're together praying, and the Spirit of God descends from heaven. The Spirit of God comes upon the believers just like Jesus had promised would happen, and he comes upon them, but not just around and with them, he comes into them. He fills them. What Jesus promised would happen now comes with a dramatic event. The believers begin to, well, you know, first of all, God gives a manifestation of the spirit in that flames of fire appeared over the believers. And it's kind of cool, a flame of fire, like when you got a candle burning, that flame kind of looks like a tongue, right? So the Bible tells us tongues of fire appeared over the top of them. And you remember Acts chapter two, 
they begin to be able to speak in languages they've never studied before. This isn't gibberish. This isn't baby talking, wiggling around. This is human languages that they have never studied and never known, and they begin to have the ability to speak in these languages, and they begin to be involuntarily prompted by the Spirit to preach the gospel in languages they've never known. God also accompanied this with the sound of a rushing wind. And so Jerusalem is filled with people. The believers are now preaching and being loud. God has given this sound. They walk outside. The people who are gathered in Jerusalem, they walk outside to see what is happening. And they hear the believers preaching the gospel in their own languages. The average Jew spoke three languages, at least. The average Jew spoke Greek, the trained language, Hebrew, Aramaic, in order to read and study the scriptures. And then, because the Jews had been spread all over the world, they had grown up in these various places. And so they spoke languages where they had grown up with Medes and Parthian and others that Acts chapter 2 mentions. They're able to preach the gospel in these languages they've never known, and these people are hearing the gospel in languages they've, in their mother language. This goes on for some time. Peter then takes center stage and he preaches the message of salvation through the Lord Jesus and the people repent of that group. 3,000 of them believe on the Lord Jesus. As Messiah, Savior, King, they are baptized and the church instantly grows in this dramatic way. In the midst of all of this as this is happening, the crowds ask the apostles a couple questions. And one of them was, what does this all mean? Like, so something is clearly happening here. There were skeptics in the crowd that day. Some of them you know, said the apostles must be drunk. It's nine in the morning. They must be drunk and just gibbering. There's always going to be the skeptic trying to explain away the works of God. But some of them asked the apostles, something clearly is happening here. What does this mean? For one, I find it just amazing, do you not, of God writing this festival, this feast into the Old Testament and then bringing this conclusion on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended, the feast of ingathering now has met its fulfillment. There has now come the great ingathering. Those sheaves of Christ have been brought in. What we trusted God to do back at Passover, he has now fulfilled. The ingathering of souls has now begun. But they ask, what's this mean? Peter answers that question, and one of the ways that he answers it is by quoting Old Testament scripture. One of the places he quotes is Joel chapter two. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Now, when he says all mankind, almost every time the Bible uses that language, it does not mean every soul, but every people group. This is not just going to be for Jews only. God is going to pour forth his spirit and bring salvation to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. There are going to be souls gathered out who trust in Christ from all of these places. All who come to Christ receive of the spirit of God. And this has been prophesied even from the Old Testament. 
What we see on the day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of a whole lot of what God had been doing throughout Old Testament history to preach these things in shadows and parables. In Romans 8, we've been seeing the work of the Spirit in our lives as believers. We see how He has been at work. We have seen ways that He is at work in conversion, the moment of the new birth when we are brought to faith. We are helped by God, awakened by God. But we also see the way that the Spirit works in this ongoing activity. We've mentioned that he indwells those who are in Christ. That's the primary truth we're going to consider this morning. Even though it's implied throughout the whole passage, even though we've been making mention of it uh, numerous times, it's the first time in Romans that it's specifically stated that the Spirit of God does not merely come to us. He does not merely come to be with us. He comes to live in us. And we've been seeing what it is that he's doing. He's not just in there lounging. He is at work. The point we're in is that the spirit is sanctifying us, getting us ready for glorification. And we've noted that the text mentions nine ways that he is at work in us. Now, last Sunday, we covered two of them. The spirit changes the course of our life and the spirit enables us to please God. We're ready for number three today. We're only going to cover this one, which is simply the spirit indwells us. It's referenced throughout the whole passage, but we're specifically going to meditate on verse nine. So if you'll turn your attention there and let's consider it this morning. We looked last Sunday at how the spirit changes the course of our life. And if you remember, we saw this contrast painted between the justified Christian and the man who has rejected God, the man who has not, at least not yet, come to faith in Christ. And the, the way that the text speaks of this individual, the man, the woman, is that there is the one according to the spirit or the one according to the flesh. In order to teach what difference it makes to have the Holy Spirit living within us, this contrast was painted. Here is what it is like for the one who lives according to the flesh, who is according to the flesh. For the one who is according to the Spirit, that's who he is. The Spirit leads him to set his mind on the things of the Spirit. If your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, well, then you're going to live according to the Spirit. But then here's the way of the flesh. In verse nine, you notice that there's kind of this turn. So a contrast was painted, but now he speaks to you who are in Christ. And he says, however, you believer, justified Christian, you have repented of your sins, submitted the whole of yourself to Christ, trusted in him to be saved. You have called out to him to forgive you of your sins. You have come to Christ. You justified Christian, you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So what he does is he teaches more of what it means to be according to the spirit. How is he at work in us? Verse nine gives two pretty straightforward sentences that teach truth, but it's big truth. 
You know, there, there are some truths of the Bible that, you know, if you grew up in a religious family or at least attending church, even churches that didn't teach the Bible a lot, surely you heard all your life, you're filled with the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. You're filled with, He lives in us. And it's possible that by growing up hearing these kinds of things, its significance can kind of dull over the years. This is big truth. And in order to see this big truth, it helps us to, to see how it fits into the, the whole storyline of the Bible from start to finish. This is, this is what we call biblical theology. And, and you know, we do this very often. The, the, the way to understand a passage in, in, in the fullness that we're capable of, the way to understand a specific truth is to look at starting at the beginning and how God has revealed it all the way through, going all the way to the end. How has he taught this in order to understand it in its context of the entire Bible, the context of all that God has done in history. That's what biblical theology is. And I want to do that this morning with this truth right here. God in us, the spirit indwelling us in order to show why it is a big deal. So let's go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning and think through creation with me once again. God creates, he forms Adam and Eve, breathed into them the breath of life. That's gonna be significant next week, Lord willing. He sets them in the garden that he had prepared paradise. The greatest treasure of that paradise, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in this paradise. The greatest treasure of that paradise is that Adam and Eve, it appears regularly, but the text doesn't explicitly state it, but it appears regularly walked with God. God came to them personally. They met with God face to face. He spoke to them audibly. Their relationship with God was not like what ours is. You know, we get frustrated from time to time because our relationship with God right now is based on faith and not by sight. And I, I think it's probably every Christian at some point goes just, you know, God, I'd really just like to mm, see something, get a glimpse of heaven or whatever. Our relationship now for this brief little bit of period is based on faith and not by sight. That's not the case with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve heard the voice of God. God came and regularly walked with them. Our eyes now are blinded. We cannot look directly on him. Our relationship is different. Adam and Eve communed with God, knew God, talked with God, walked with God. They were able to because they were sinless. But then comes the fall. And when they defied his authority and sin came in like a plague, they and all who have come from them became sinful, defiled, and unclean. And part of the judgment of the curse is that Adam and Eve were then cast out of the garden. They were cast out of the garden for several reasons, some of which, Lord willing, again, we'll talk about next Sunday but part of the issue is that their relationship with God was now going to change. And from Adam and Eve till Sinai, Mount Sinai with Moses and the Israelites, mankind was mostly in darkness. 
Now, throughout the book of Genesis, we do see the occasional b- believer, Old Testament saint, even before the giving of the law, like that mysterious Melchizedek guy that we meet in the book of Genesis. And God always has a remnant, even if it is small. But other than that remnant, we see that mankind largely lived in darkness because God did not dwell with men. And part of what the Bible reveals is why. We learn, especially when we come to the law, that if God who is so holy, that there are angels who cover their eyes so as not to look on his face, to whom heaven resounds with the thunderous songs of worship, shaking the foundations of heaven, exulting in his glory, If the God who simply speaks and all of the vastness of this universe popped into being, he holds electrons together as well as just all of it continuing to exist by the word of his power, the God who is holy, holy, holy. If he comes into the midst of a sinful, unholy, defiled people, he will consume them in his wrath. We've seen that truth come up numerous times in passages that we look at. And I understand that I just said something there that, you know, if you're a part of this church, we know these things, but it could be that you grew up in a tradition where you've not heard those kinds of things. The only thing I can tell you is American Christianity has been taking a long journey away from the Bible. And I want you to understand that as I say things like that, this is not just like this church's opinion of God. And you could go somewhere else And it's all just how we like to think of God. No, God has revealed himself. That's the whole purpose with the unfolding of why God has progressively revealed more and more. The whole why of the Old Testament, the foundations of who God is and the principles of truth we needed to know in order to understand the coming of Christ, it's all laid there. God has revealed himself. This is his character. Do you remember when Moses asked to see God? And God replied, no man can see my face and live. Do you remember when Israel came to Sinai? And God revealed a portion of his glory, his awe-inspiring and yes, terrifying holiness was revealed to them at Sinai. God on purpose brought them to the mountain to show them what the law is like, what these attributes of God are like. He brought them to the mountain that was on fire, billowing with smoke. They saw sights and heard sounds that brought terror to them. There were trumpets sounding from heaven that came down to their ears. And then the most terrifying thing of all happened when God spoke and they cried out, Moses, make it stop or we're going to die. When Israel approached the mountain and God was revealing this part of his glory to them, immediately God spoke to Moses and the very first thing addressed that God told Moses is this, make sure you warn the people that they do not approach the mountain to touch it because if they do, they will die. He also told them, make sure that you warn them not to gaze up into the fire and try to see my face. Now, why is this the case? What is God revealing in this? Why did God do this? 
<laughs> is it because he's mean? No, this is the reality of his holiness. This is the reality of who he is. And who he is is perfectly righteous and good. See, there is the principle that when evil comes right to the face of God, he destroys it. You may remember that there's even a Hebrew word for this that comes up several times in the Old Testament. You'll hear it in the names of certain cities and locations. It's the, it's the word Perez. When God's fury breaks forth, that word breaking forth, that's the Hebrew word Perez, like on the day that Uzzah, you remember him, the guy that reached out his hands to touch the Ark of the Covenant, his unclean hands touched that which had been made holy by the presence of God, and he was struck dead. The place was named Perez Uzzah, the breaking forth against Uzzah. The principle is God in his holiness refuses to have fellowship with sin. He refuses to embrace evil. He refuses to dine with wickedness. And that is bad news for a race of men who are trapped in sinfulness as we are, but as we say so often with joy, but our God is also merciful, kind. His loving kindness reaches to the heavens. And in the plan of history that is unfolding, in the plan to save souls through his son before anyone was going to understand what we needed Jesus to do, what it was that Christ has accomplished in order to bring an understanding to that, God revealed to mankind these principles and truths that he did in the Old Testament. That's the main meaning behind why the ceremonial laws and specifically the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. The whole point of the tabernacle, you may remember it was a couple years back, we did a jet tour through the Old Testament, and we talked about some things with the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle was when it was the tent, when they were traveling around in the wilderness. Later in Solomon's day, when it was made permanent, it became the temple. The whole point behind it was this dilemma. If God is so holy that when he comes into the midst, if the sinful people come into his presence, he destroys them, then how can God make this covenant with Israel where he promises, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will come and dwell in your midst? How can he do that without destroying them? The answer for that was about threefold. First, God gave them his law. If they would keep the law, then they would be a different kind of people. Second, God gave them that ceremonial part of the law with the sacrifices, all of the washings, the purifications. God gave them sacrifices to make atonement for their sin. Atonement is to, to deal with their sins so that it can be taken out of the way in order that they can be made right with God. And whenever you read that section, there's a lot of blood. It's, Leviticus is a bloody book. Blood every single day because sin continues every single day and must be atoned for. And then thirdly, God gave this temple tabernacle first, later the temple. 
God would come and he would dwell in the midst of his people, but the way that he could do so without destroying them with his holiness is that they would not be in his direct presence. There would be the separation of a veil so that they could not look directly on the presence of God and would not be right there in the midst. And look, God knew that the people would not be able to keep the law. That's part of the very point. Part of the very reason why God unfolded history like this was to reveal here's man's inability to live up to the standard to please God. So he gave them his law, he gave them blood atonement, and he gave them the temple. The people were unable to live obedience. They left the Lord again and again. You know the story. He sent his prophets. Not only did most of the time they reject his prophets, every time the prophets came preaching, you are not right with God. You must repent and come bow yourselves and return to the Lord. The people responded in the same way we see the world respond when we preach the gospel. Don't you tell me I'm not a good person. I'm a great guy. And oftentimes they killed the prophets. This world is known for killing the messengers of God. This history continues on for centuries. And you may remember when we worked through the prophets. When we come to Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel the prophet is given a vision. And God showed Ezekiel what was happening inside of the temple and what it meant for the presence of God. In Ezekiel 8, 6, God says to Ezekiel, after he showed him what was happening inside the temple complex by the priest, by the people, he said, do you see what they are doing? The great abomination which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary. What God showed Ezekiel is that the temple had been being used for the worship of false gods. They were actually offering sacrifices to the Baals and the Asherahs. And did you catch that part there with what God said? Do you see the great abominations which they are doing so that I would be far from my sanctuary? What God goes on to reveal is when this idolatrous worship is taking place, when there is the rejection of true worship of God, he refuses to dwell in their midst. As you go to Ezekiel 10 and 11, God actually shows this picture of him leaving the Holy of Holies, passing through the holy place, out the courts, leaving the mountain and crossing over to hover above the Mount of Olives. God left the temple refusing to dwell with them. The glory of the Lord departed. In one sense, when God invited Israel into this covenant, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will come and dwell in your midst. In one sense, it was kind of like there was a return to the garden where Adam and Eve knew God and met with God. God gave the invitation, I will enter into a relationship with you like no one has had since the garden. But because it was dependent on the people's obedience, they could not keep the presence of God. Well, now we jump forward to the arrival of the Messiah. 
And Jesus comes announcing that he has come as the fulfillment of all that has come before. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the sacrifices. He said, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. He's the fulfillment of every part, every shadow and every mysterious part of that Old Testament law, Jesus has come to fulfill. We learn that all of these aspects of the ceremonial law, they were all meant to be shadows, parables that preached a truth in order to make us understand and then for Jesus to come and fulfill. And part of that, Jesus came as the fulfillment of the temple itself. In other words, the temple was specifically designed by the Father to be a shadow, a temporary parable to preach Jesus and the salvation that he would one day accomplish. So you may remember in John 1, when we're being told that Jesus, the eternal divine son of God, took flesh in order to come and live here, what's the word that is used to describe his time here? He came and tabernacled among us. That's not an accident. Later, Jesus would go on to say, destroy this temple, and three days later, I will raise it up again. And then if that wasn't already clear, the text goes on to say he was speaking of the temple of his body. So what do we see? The meeting place between heaven and earth where man can meet with God is no longer at a building. It's no longer at that tabernacle. It's no longer at the temple. The meeting place where man can meet with God is now in the person of the Lord Jesus. The meeting place between heaven and earth is the God man himself. Do you remember when Jacob set out on his journey because his brother Esau wanted to kill him? He sets out on that journey, his very first night, he goes to sleep and God gives him a vision. He has a vision of a stairway going to heaven and angels ascending and descending there. And he comes to the conclusion and says, this land that God promised us, it is special. This is like the very meeting place of between heaven and earth. This is the Bethel, Hebrew word bait, meaning house, El from Elohim, the house of Elohim. This is the meeting place between heaven and earth. We jump to the New Testament again. Jesus meets Nathanael and Jesus knows everything about Nathanael. Nathanael is shocked. And so he says, Rabbi, you really are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus says, you're thinking this already. Wait till you see the rest of what I'm going to show you. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. What's the point? He's referencing the vision of Jacob. The meeting place between heaven and earth is no longer a land. It is in the person of the Lord Jesus. You want to meet with God? Come to Christ. We could close our Bibles and just go home there. And I don't know you, I got some chills. I've worshiped, there's more. The truth goes further in the text. Because look to verse 9, 10, and 11 in Romans 8. The Lord Jesus, who is the meeting place between heaven and earth, what does verse 9, 10, and 11 say? He, 
dwells in you. He dwells in you who are in Christ, the spirit of God, that's referring to the father. And he is also called the spirit of Christ. He is in you. Verse 10, Christ is in you. God is in, the Father is in you because his spirit is in you. I don't have time to develop that point today. Lord willing, next Sunday, you got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all being preached. The, some of the doctrine of the Trinity being unfolded for us right there. He's in you. Jump with me again this week to John chapter 14 for a bit. John 14. Look at verses 16 and 17 again and think about it in context with what we've been talking about today. John 14, 16. Jesus, okay, so this is pre-crucifixion. This is the night of the betrayal. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. This is only for those who are in Christ, whom the world cannot receive because he, it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be, day of Pentecost, will be in you. That's a remarkable truth. This helper, the spirit of truth from the father and from the son will be in us. I do think that there is some of the indication. It's been one of the kind of debates from church history of how much grace from the Holy Spirit did Old Testament believers have? I can't answer that in just absolute clarity, but I do think maybe some helps are given here in this text. He says to the apostles, you know him because he abides with you, but he will be in you. In other words, a greater grace is about to come. A greater work, and it not just a merely dwelling around and among you, but dwelling inside of you is about to happen. You're in John 14, jump to verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. God will make his home inside of his people. The father, the son, and the spirit all dwelling within us. God has come and is relating to his people in a new kind of way. It is no longer dependent on a land, a location, a building. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the spirit of God. The temple has been fulfilled and now there's a new temple. Let me have you turn to a couple places that mentions this in the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six, find verse 18. Now, this is very helpful because there's also some application here for what this all means. Romans 8 is not yet making a lot of application, just simply telling us the reality and the theology of it. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, it's talking about sexual sin 
And we're given, here's a reason why to avoid sexual sin. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know, Christian, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own. Jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 for a moment. 2 Corinthians 6, find verse 14 there. I just want to show you what the context is going on. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now look and see how he further preaches this truth to call us to obedience. Verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. Now watch what happens here. What happens here is he says, New Testament truth, we are the temple of God. He's gonna quote Old Testament scripture about how the temple was to be treated and apply it to you and I as believers. The temple is holy. What does that mean? Treat it holy, you believer. You have been made holy because of the presence of God. Treat it holy. Verse 16, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the spirit of God. All right, so what's the message here? God lives inside of us. We are the temple of God. This is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament preached. And there's even still yet more to come in the age to come, in the kingdom to come. The Bible applies this to you individual believer. And then the Bible also applies this to the church universal, the we that is there. If I had more time, I'll just give you this reference today. You can go look up yourself, Ephesians chapter two. If you read 11 down through 22, that whole section speaks of the body of Christ, all the believers as the temple of God brought together. He dwells in us. Now, therefore be holy. We are indwelt by the spirit. Now think about if God was going to dwell amongst his people, what do we say in the Old Testament? He gave them his law, he gave them blood atonement, and he gave them his presence. Here we are in the new covenant. What do we have? The blood of Christ has made atonement. God himself comes to dwell inside of us, and he has given us his law. The law of Christ, and in the new covenant, it is now written on our hearts meaning we want it in a way that wasn't there in the past. And we are called, treat the body as holy because we are a temple. That would be one of the applications here. Back in Romans 8, you notice the text isn't giving like a lot of application. It's coming, it'll be here soon. But you notice so far, it's not giving a lot of application. It's just telling you, here's the reality. This is who you are in Christ. So the first application, Christian, Know this. Secondly, worship. Worship in response. And then now here's application. Treat the body as holy. 
Now, you've probably at some point encountered somebody with like a legalistic kind of tone say something like, yeah, that's why you should never eat a piece of cake because your body is a temple. All right. Usually this is spoken by a legalistic kind of crowd. You know, we don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't go with the girls to do, you know, this kind of thing. Like we, we avoid all of this stuff because my body's a temple. My body's a temple, no cake, no nothing. Listen, maybe there's some application way down at like number 99 down there about something like that. The application that scripture brings us to is our interaction with sin our interaction with the things that dishonor God, our interaction with disobedience, we are to see. How many times do we see the Bible preach something that is calling us, stand up, put your shoulders back. You are sons and daughters of the living God. There is a dignity that he has given you and there is a greater one. He's in you. You are the temple of the living God that is meant to do something in us that says, I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want to dishonor him. I want to glorify him. You are temples of the living God. This is a gift that is unfathomable. So Christian, let us live it. Let's worship. Let's marvel. Let's praise. And let's live holy. Holiness has to matter to us. The very spirit of God lives within us. And to you who have not yet turned to Christ, I hope what you are hearing is in not in any kind of cruel way is that there is a distinction between where you are and where you need to be. If you have never turned to Christ to be saved, what you need is not just to try to get some religion. We want you to be here, but what you need is not just church attendance. What you need is not just, I need to get myself into church. You need a miracle. You need the living God to come and make you his home. You need God in you, giving you life. But the promise and the call of God is that if you will look to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will bow yourself in repentant submission and trust Christ, calling out to him to save you, you will be saved and all of this transformation will take place. God will make you his home. And you might say, but I still got a lot of sin. This is exactly how he has chosen to work. First, he will technically make you holy. And then he's gonna go to work over the years, slowly changing your life so that you will live holy. But first, you need Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truths and thank you for just again astounding us with another gift, another way you have worked. The deeper we go, the more we see just how shallow we really are. We're just barely scratching the surfaces of what you have done, oh God, in the gospel. Father, help us to live as holy people. Help us, oh God, for this to matter to us and for us to commit ourselves to holiness. And God, for any in the room that is not yet in Christ, please turn them to yourself to trust Christ. Please give us your blessing. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord bless you.
Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.